Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. I've been incredibly busy, so that's why it's been a little while since the last episode. In the meantime, I've been accumulating questions from listeners. And before I get onto these questions, I want to say if you have a question, you can ask me your question by emailing me at joe at forcefreegundog.com. That's joe, spelt J-O, at forcefreegundog.com. So, Drop me an email if you have any questions about anything relating to training your dog to be a gun dog. All right, let's take a little look at some of the questions that have come in. Hold the line. So firstly, I've got a question from Belinda who said, Hi, I just listened to your podcast for the first time yesterday. I was wondering if you could elaborate on not walking the dog, especially a young dog who, say, has a good recall but isn't 100% trustworthy. What exercise might look like outside of the home? And how if you allow a dog to explore and relax outside the home? Or if you've already done that, point me in the right in the direction of a resource to read or listen to. Thanks. I enjoy your stuff very much. I will continue listening. Belinda. So this is a very good question. And on the subject of pointing you in the direction of a resource to read or listen to, I highly recommend you get my book because there is a whole big chapter in the book. So the book is Force Free Gundog Training the fundamentals for success. And there's a whole chapter in the book on not walking the dog. Um, I'm trying to, as I speak, pick up the book so I can actually tell you what the name of the chapter is because I can't remember what we called it in the end. Oh, here we go. Um, Behind the scenes, how to stop walking the dog. I think it was originally called stop walking the dog and start training them or something. But I I think we decided that was a little bit too aggressive. (laughs) Um, so, so we changed it, which is why I can remember exactly what it was called, but there's a whole chapter in the book, um, on that subject. So yes. So basically what I'm saying here is going to recapitulate in brief what the book says, but the thing to say firstly, is there's different ways to look at this. And the first way that I would just look at this is in purely practical, um, time related clock reasons. So Today, we are all so busy. I am anyway. I'm assuming most people listening are also really busy. And it's really difficult to fit in everything we need to fit in, not just dog stuff, but family stuff and um, everything else really in life, isn't it? So I think it's re- it's going to be really tough for anyone to walk the dog for, I don't know, how long does an average dog walk take, say 45 minutes, and also train the dog to a good level, to a good standard, because that probably takes another, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour 
a day. So that's a lot of time. If you have enough time to walk the dog and train the dog, then this point might be irrelevant. Maybe you'll just sort of have to listen to the other points I'm about to make. But I think most people don't have don't actually have enough time to walk the dog and train the dog as well. And so people who are walking the dog tend to not be training the dog enough. And that's just how it goes, because we all only have enough time in the day. Um, and, you know, if it's going to get filled up with walking along behind your dog while your dog sniffs around and does stuff, that is time which you could be spending training, which you're not. So that's the first thing to say. Do you actually have enough time to walk the dog and train the dog? So the second thing to say is in terms of the dog learning what is reinforcing. All the time that you are out with your dog and you are not providing the reinforcer, something is providing the reinforcer because the dog is going to seek out what is reinforcing. They're going to look for what is reinforcing in the environment. So that might be smells, that might be, um, I don't know, bunny poo, um, <laughs> bird poo, whatever. Um, it might be game. It might be, you know, stuff out there in the environment that's not you, basically. And to a certain degree, we want the dog to be interested in that, but it's really, really, really important that we are part of that. And the dog also realizes that we are a provider of reinforcers too. And people fall down and make massive mer errors with their dog training when they just let the dog learn that the environment is reinforcing and they don't spend enough time teaching the dog that they, the person, the handler, are reinforcing in an outdoors environment. So there's a lot of people who do training at home. So they seem to um, follow a lot of um, various different training which you can do in the house, for example, scent work or basic obedience exercises um, or tricks or there's lots of training that you can do in the house. And a lot of people um, do that in the house, but then when they go out of the house, they just walk the dog and they just unquestioningly assume that this is what you should do and this is what owning a dog is about. And what happens is the dog starts to learn that you are relevant and important and significant in the house as a provider of reinforcers and a source of reinforcement. But outside, away from the house, actually you're quite boring and the environment is much more reinforcing than you are. And so you don't want the dog to learn that. So it's really important that you are teaching the dog that you are a thing to focus on, a reinforcing thing to focus on. And the way to do that is through training, because that's what training is about. If you're using force-free methods anyway, it's about teaching the dog that you are the provider of reinforcers in the environment. And ultimately, that you are almost like the gateway to the environmental reinforcers. That's what you're trying to teach the dog eventually. Um, so those are two things to say, and two ways that you can fall down. Um, so what does an exercise look like? That's a good question, because I think that you know, maybe I can explain all of this. Then people are like, well, what do I do with my dog when I go out? What what actually am I doing? So that's going to depend very much on your dog and on your dog's needs and the age of your dog and sort of the level of training that they're at and what they need. Um, but I can give you some different examples. So I can give you examples from my dogs and where they are at the moment. So for example, my Labrador Moy is seven and a half now. And she is really responsive, really, really focused on me, um, but not to the point that she won't enjoy the environment. She will, you know, if I just l release her to go and, you know, free run, she will run a very good distance away. She will sniff around and look for stuff. 
I think she's looking for bunnies, actually, most of the time. Um, but she'll sniff around and um, hunt and be really independent until I ask her to do something, at which point she'll instantly connect back to me again. So she is um, my sort of ideal dog in that way. So she doesn't actually need lots of time focusing on me. We just need to pick out the things that she needs to have tidied up and worked on and to identify those and work on those. But we can do that in different new exciting environments and we can combine it with a little bit of a quote unquote walk because at nearly eight years old, she can do that and it's not going to be a problem for her. So we might start out with a little bit of heel work. And when I feel like she's really focused on me and connected to me, I can release her to run around and that will reinforce the heel work. Then we might, um, as you know, after we walk on a little bit, find a spot where we can do something that is useful for her. So, for example, um, maybe teaching her to line between two dummies or bumpers that I've thrown out, which she can see for a dummy or bumper that she can't see, which is further away between those two. So kind of more advanced retrieving drills. Um, blinds, I might drop a dummy while we're walking along. And then once we've walked along a considerable distance, just call her to me, line her up and send her for that as a blind. Um, I might, um, stop in a field and do a bit of walking baseball with her and then release her and we'll walk on again. So basically it's a, it's a, it's a training walk. It's a walking along. And while you're walking along, looking at the environment for things that you can make use of. So I often think about it as, you know, if you know about parkour, like dog parkour, but you're, if you, if you do dog parkour, which I don't, by the way, but I've read a couple of books about it and I can see what they are attempting to do. Um, so what you're doing then is looking for environmental features that you can use. So you might be like, oh, look, here's a railing. I can do this. Or here's a wall. I can do this with my dog on this wall or this tree stump. We can do two paws or four paws or ask the dog to jump up on there. Um, and, you know, it's probably the same for skateboarding or for other sports like that. You're looking at the environment and you're thinking, yeah, I can do this on this thing. <laughs> so you're looking at the environment constantly and thinking about what can I do on this um, railing step piece of equipment and the piece of equipment won't be something that someone not involved in your sport even notices they'll just think that is a handrail that is a step that is you know whatever it's that it's not going to look to them like a piece of equipment but because you've got your parkour eye on um or your skateboarding eye or whatever it is you can see this equipment or this um um physical feature in the environment and you can think about what exercise you could do with it or on it that is useful for your dog sport now gun dog training is exactly the same so you're walking along and to other people it might just be a stream or might just be a wall or there might just be um, a hedge line but to you with your gun dog eye you're thinking there's a hedge line i can use it um, to help my dog run in a straight line to extend the length on our blinds or there's a wall let's do some jumping there's a stream can i teach the dog to go across water although it's only a very small stream but that would be good to get the concept across to the dog in the first place before we start to use l larger bodies of water so it's about approaching the environment with your gun dog eye while you're out with your dog and thinking about how you can make use of the natural features that you're walking past in training your dog to be a gun dog now, the byproduct of this is that you are constantly um, calling your dog back to you and reinforcing that, of course, and then doing some training with your dog in the environment, which involves giving them lots of treats and interacting with the environment and you at the same time. So in a way, this, this builds focus on you because you're not just walking along, walking the dog, plodding along behind the dog. Um, anyway, so that's what I'm doing with my Labrador Moy um, and doing that out and about in new different places 
it's definitely something that you can you can do either with a dog which is a bit older, which you want them to have a little bit more freedom, but also with dogs which get a bit bored if you do too much of the same thing in the same place, which brings me on to my next dog, Ren, who is my, how old is she now? Um, May, June, July, August. She's 15 months now. Um, so almost, yeah, she's 15 months. And she is highly distractible. She has loads of natural ability when it comes to hunting and pointing and running and um, finding game <laughs> um what she needs to work on is focus on me um things that like heel work she finds really difficult she finds it very hard to offer sustained focus for more than like a split second before she'll be interested in the environment again in some way if a person appears on the horizon they need to be looked at for many seconds with great interest as if they are amazingly fascinating even though they're just a person um so She's very, very distractible in that way. And the retrieving side of things, she can't do much, uh, many reps in a row. So if I, if I am thinking, if I had a, a retriever, for example, I'd be thinking, for example, with a dog at the same stage, I need to work on my back cast. Let's go to this field. Let's put out my white fence post. Let's do this number. Let's, let's do this back cast with a right back cast. Let's do it with a left back cast. Let's move away from the pole. Let's vary the distance between me and the dog once I've increased the distance between the pole and the dog. And I'd be playing with these different variables and making them a little bit harder. And when I felt like we'd achieved something, I would end the session. But with Ren and probably with a lot of dogs like Ren, it's just after you can do a couple of reps maybe and then you'll feel like the dog is just checking out like you send you cast the dog and maybe they just go sniff the floor even though they've done the previous two casts perfectly um or you cast the dog and they just decide to do zoomies or run at you um by zoomies i mean they just run in a circle and look really excited and happy but it's a way of getting out of doing the training with you it's a way of saying hey i don't want to do this anymore i've had enough um and so with this sort of dog, you can't do too many reps, especially in a row. And um, you need to kind of keep varying what you're doing. So with this sort of dog as well, because you need to work on the hunting side of things, you can do some hunting and then you can do maybe a, bit, a retrieve and then a bit more hunting and then a retrieve and then a bit more hunting. But you're trying to make sure the hunting is not anywhere too exciting at that age. So you don't, you don't want to have any chasing happening. Um, and so, yeah, you just basically, it takes a lot longer because you can't do so many reps in a row and getting the concept across to the dog takes a lot longer. Um, but it's just what the dog needs in a way. So, so that sort of dog, you know, walking about and um, doing some training on your walk can actually be really useful as well. And then with my little um, 20 week old puppy, if I'm around a pup at the moment, I'm doing what I call um, doing the rounds, um, which is when I pick a field, just one field, and I walk around in a circle around this field and it's the same field. So it's not going to be continually new. It's going to be after the two or three laps of the field that might start to be quite boring and so we can work on things as we walk around the field and I can release the dog to the environment in between as well so I might do um, some remote sits and then release the dog and then while I'm walking along do some more remote sits but this time the dog is running in the right distance so it's kind of made it a little bit harder I might do, I might recall the dog to me and do a little bit of heel work and then release the dog to the environment I might get my bumper or dummy out my pocket, put it on the floor 
and do some clicker retrieve stuff. So clicking the dog for pickups on the dummy um, in one spot and then release the dog back to sniff around in the environment and walk on a little bit further. So I'm constantly sort of doing a little exercise releasing the dog to the environment, walking on a little bit, doing another exercise, but I'm keeping this within one field. So unlike with the older dogs where the field might change or the environment might change, I'm sticking to one field. And that's what I suggest you do if you have a very young dog or you're starting out or you have a very distractible dog or you have a dog which is just not offering you any attention in an outdoors environment. And that is the, the best place to, to to start with things. Um, so... I hope that helps and gives you some idea. But yeah, you need to know what you need to train. I mean, basically, I often think that people who don't know what to train the dog to do just don't know enough about gun dog training yet. So you need to go and learn what you need your dog to do so that then you can make a plan for training your dog to do it. And then you can start to do that plan outside instead of just walking the dog. So hopefully that helps a little bit. So Think about what you need your dog to do and start to train your dog to do it. Because for most people, there really isn't enough time to walk the dog and train the dog each day. Now, I should also just say, by the way, that if you are listening to this and thinking, wow, can I never walk my dog? No, obviously you can you know, occasionally walk your dog. It does depend on the dog, though. If you've got like a bonkers hunting mad dog that you're really trying to not to rein in, and as soon as you let them go, they're at the bottom of a field trying to hunt independently, then that's probably not a dog that you want to take out on a family walk. (laughs) But for most dogs, a walk every now and again, very occasionally, is not going to undo your training. So for most dogs, it's not an issue very occasionally. But on a daily basis, that's that's the situation you want to try and avoid. Anyway, I hope that's helped answer the question about walking your dog. Hold the line. So next question is from Kobe. Kobe says, I recently watched your webinar on the clicker retrieve from Grisha Stewart. Yeah, by the way, that webinar is still available for purchase. So unlike the Fenzy webinars, which come down, I think, almost immediately or a week after they've they've been done, um, Grisha's webinars stay up and available, continue to be available for purchase. So if you want to buy a webinar on the clicker retrieve, you can do that from grishastewart.com. And look at her webinar menu and then find my webinar on the Clicker Retrieve. And the reason why you might want to um, watch the webinar rather than buy my online course is maybe you don't want something which is quite as in-depth as my online course, but you want a bit more than the podcast and the book. Um, So the webinar is kind of a good in-between way of learning about the Clicker Retrieve. So you can check that out on grishastewart.com. Anyway, Kobe says, I have a new client who has previously used a lot of dominance training with his six-year-old setter and uses him for duck retrieving. They're getting a new puppy soon, duck tolling retriever, and I explained why tug is such a great game to play. The owner explained that his bird dog books say never to play tug with a duck or a bird retrieving dog as they may tear up the bird. I'm sure there are ways around this, but I don't know how to approach it. Is there any truth to this? I don't know how much, I don't know much about gun dog training as I mostly train the average pet dog to be a good family member. Can you point me to any resources or advice to be able to train both a gentle retrieve and allow the puppy to play tug games? So, there aren't really any resources because it's not a problem. So there's not sort of a resource that I can direct you to on how to play tug with, with a gun dog without causing problems because it doesn't cause problems. So you just play tug like you would with any other dog. Um, so the thing to say about it is 
dogs know what they have in their mouths. If we think about all the different ways that dogs use their mouths, they are many and varied. So, for example, they know if they are eating a raw bone, that they're eating a raw bone and they're going to bite down really hard and try and eat it or a chicken carcass or something, for example. So they know when they're eating food and they know the difference between that and retrieving game. So it always amazes me that there are so many people in the gundog world, traditional trainers, who will advocate not playing tug with gundogs. And yet often the exact same people are feeding their gundogs raw food, which, by the way, is a great way to feed a dog. <laughs> I highly advocate feeding raw food. But the thing is, they don't seem to think there's any problem with feeding a dog raw, raw food and yet expecting the dog to retrieve essentially raw food to them. So, and the reason that that's not a problem is because the dog clearly knows the difference between when it is something they're supposed to eat and when it's something they're supposed to retrieve. And it's exactly the same thing when it comes to playing tug. The dog knows when they have in their mouth a, a thing that they can bite down on and play with, which frequently is not even fur, real fur or feather. It's frequently faux fur or fabric or fleece uh, material. And they know when they've got that in their mouth and when they, and when they have something they're supposed to retrieve to you basically. Um, secondly, even people who don't play tug with their dogs. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. We'll see their dogs playing tug between each other. So you can't really like people, even if they don't, even if they choose not to play tug with their dogs themselves, because they think it's going to create hard mouth in their dogs, then they will often have dogs which play tug between each other. One dog will pick up a toy or a piece of rope or some bedding or some fabric of some kind and will play tug with another dog or a leash or something like that. And will play tug with another dog. So it shouldn't really, you know, why does it matter what the dog is playing with, whether they're playing with a person or whether they're playing with another dog in terms of, you know, if we're going to say that tug teaches hard mouth, then surely all tug teaches hard mouth, not just tug with people, but tug with other dogs as well. So that doesn't make sense either if they're going to allow that and yet disallow playing tug with people. So I hope that makes sense. But the main thing to say is that 
dogs know what they're doing and they know that it's very context specific all of this and it's a little it's a little bit like you know for a dog their mouth is like human hands are that's what they that's what they do with their mouth their mouths are what they pick things up with so we pick things up with our hands generally and interact with our hands and they will pick things up with their mouth now you wouldn't think like for a person um you know i don't know we should only pick one thing that we do with our hands and we shouldn't do anything else um, you know, I don't know, don't ever take up a martial art or box or do anything like that because you might accidentally um, hit someone <laughs> when you didn't intend to. Or, you know, <laughs> So we know what we're doing with our hands and we can choose from a repertoire of behaviours what we want to do according to the context and according to what is expected and desired from us. And it's the exact same thing with a dog. They know when they've been given something to eat and when they've been given something to play with um, and they, they can tell from the context. So, so that's the only thing I would say. Don't worry about it whatsoever and feel free to play tug with your dog. However, the time when you don't want to play tug is during the retrieve. So for example, if you are doing your actual proper retrieve and the dog brings something to you from a distance, you don't immediately want to go into a game of tug with the same item without having had it released to you first. So that's the only thing I would say. So um, and that's for keep away reasons as well. You don't want the dog trying to take things off you either, really. So it's not good training for that reason, too. So basically, try and keep it away from the retrieve. But it's fine to pick items up and play tug. In fact, tug is really, really useful for many reasons in gun dog training. I've, I forgot to say that a bit earlier, actually. I should say that. I should highlight the fact that tug is really valuable as something to be building for your dog to find reinforcing and to want to do. And the reason for that is what the the same thing that is being played out with the tug toy is the thing the dog wants to play out when they want to chase game. So if you can provide the dog with something that they like to do this with with you, you can then use this as a reinforcer at times when your dog might want to chase game, for example. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'll give you I'll give you a, more, a better a better description or better example. So often dogs, when they're really highly aroused and really excited and really pumped up and thinking about, you know, being in the presence of game or having been running and hunting and maybe having put something up and flushed something, they're not going to want food at that moment. A lot of dogs, a lot of dogs, even quite food motivated dogs, if you put food on their nose at that moment, they will just refuse to eat it. And that's just because of arousal levels. They're just so excited and food at that moment is not what they want. I mean, even in a physiological sense, when when people or dogs get really aroused, the digestive system actually slows down because all of the um, blood is flowing to the muscles and it's flowing. It's not going to the digestive system at that time. So even physiologically, it's not something that the dog's body is or even humans bodies are set up to do when we're in states of high arousal. So some dogs, if they're very food motivated, you'll be lucky and they will eat food at these times and you can even use it for training purposes however a lot of dogs that it just won't work it just will be ineffective and then you're frankly screwed to put it <laughs> to put it nicely because if you can't provide something the dog finds reinforcing at that moment they're going to go they're going to eventually want to go after that thing that bird that they flushed whatever it is that thing out there in the environment because you can't offer anything yourself so um, the answer to this is to make sure that you have built a reinforcer, which the dog finds valuable and that you've done that from puppyhood onwards, if possible. So it, the dog does bring something to the table here as well, because you do get some dogs which just don't like tug. 
and they just don't find it reinforcing and you're kind of you know spending a long time trying to play with them on the floor and trying to get them interested in the tug toy and they're just not really into it or they might play with it half-heartedly for a few seconds but there's no way it's going to be reinforcing enough around game and you know so it's not always something it's not always the handler's fault is what i'm trying to say if your dog doesn't like tuck but there is an awful lot you can do and that awful lot of time that you can spend trying to build interest in tug toys from a young age and the bonus and the benefit is that when you've got that dog which has flushed that bird and really wants to chase that bird you will be able to go tag or whatever your cue is for your tug game and bring out your tuggy or your flirt pole or whatever it is and give the dog a reinforcer which they are able to use in that moment because unlike the food which they often are too aroused to be able to eat and don't find reinforcing in that moment the tug toy they will find reinforcing in that moment and they will usually still be interested in it because it's something they can chase and it's something that gives them an outlet for that desire that thing they wanted to do with the bird basically they have an an outlet that they can sort of express that um that whatever it was they wanted to express with the bird they can redirect it onto your tug or flirt pole does that make sense so i think what i'm trying to say is not only is tuggy okay to play with gun dogs it's actually really really beneficial to play it with gun dogs i'd say particularly for dogs which hunt like the spaniels and the hbrs or your pointers your setters those are the dogs which it's especially useful to use it with often retrievers because they're not in that moment of incredibly high arousal where they've just flushed something they just want to chase so often it's a bit different um and i do often usually see retrievers being a little less interested in tug frequently not always um and still being very very food motivated so often the food will work um with the retriever breeds whereas the tug i think is is really important to see if you can develop with any pup that comes will hunt before the shot basically is important any of those breeds i hope that makes sense and that I'm not just waffling aimlessly here. I hope it's making sense. Anyway, next question. Hold the line. So the next question is from Peg, who says, Hello, I am training a three-year-old neutered male Labrador for AKC Junior Hunt. I live in the Midwest, USA. We are nowhere near ready to trial. He is an excellent marker, goes directly to marks once thrown, picks them up immediately, holds the bumper. But if we are in a new location and or if the bumper thrower is new to him, he will sightsee and not return directly to me. He runs around the new person who just threw the bumper very happily, tries to visit and is very slow to respond to the come command or the whistle recall signal. He does hold the bumper all the while and does eventually return to my side. Thankfully, he doesn't do this every time. My training partners tell me to put an e-collar on him and that will fix that issue. I'm reluctant to do that, of course. I do have your book, Force Free Gundog Training. Perhaps I need to reread it. Thanks for your help in this matter. So, Peg... um, yeah, you don't say how you train the retrieve in the first place. That is kind of the critical, crucial bit of information missing from your email there. Um, because if you have not used a process which has broken down the retrieve into its component parts and built it up and put it back together again, and in the process built a really, really strong um, reinforcement history of the dog coming back to you directly and picking something up and coming to you over and over and over again, then you can see where things might fall apart. And so the clicker retrieve process, the way that I teach it anyway, does do that. It kind of, it breaks down the retrieve into the component parts and puts it together. So if you are instead, um, you know, trying to kind of mold the retrieve, so you're kind of, if you've trained your retrieve by 
people throwing stuff and you letting your dog run to it. And then after your dog picks it up, you try and be exciting and go woo, woo, woo and run away and try and get the dog to want to come back to you. <sighs> for some dogs, that might work. But I would say even for the dogs that it works for, you would get even better results if you could follow a structured process like the clicker retrieve. So the first thing I would say is if you haven't done the clicker retrieve, do the clicker retrieve. The clicker retrieve is covered in my book and there are some diagrams showing you how to do it. I I think that when it comes to dog training, sometimes, well, always videos are often way better than text. Like you can write something which takes hundreds of words to explain in detail and can take like 10 seconds to show you in a video. So videos, there's always nothing which really replaces videos. So I'd highly recommend that you check out some of the resources for the Clicker Retrieve, which involve videos. So there's two resources like that you can check out. One is, as I just mentioned, the webinar on Grisha Stewart's website, which I gave for her um, community. So her website is grishastewart.com. And I think the webinar is like $30 or something like that. I was just saying that off the top of my head. I think it's like $29 or something. Um, or if you want a more in-depth, detailed, step-by-step, how this is how to do it kind of approach. And also, this is where things may go wrong. Um, then you can take my Click Retrieve course, which you can take from my, my own website, forcefreegundog.com, and find the Click Retrieve course there. And that will give you much more detail. It will also show you. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle paws will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, force-free gundog training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called the workbook you can get both of these from amazon wherever you live that is the end of today's whistle pause let's get back to the show mistakes like common mistakes that people make at each step and how to avoid those mistakes which we just didn't have enough time to go into when we did the webinar with grisha so the webinar with grisha is very much 
when everything goes optimally at each stage, this is what you do. Whereas the step-by-step course is very much like when you do this, this may happen. And if this happens, then you should do that. So it's very much like all, all, there are all these different branches and different directions that things could go in. And here's how to fix those things if, if they do happen. Um, and it also gives you a lot more different um, examples of dogs doing the various stages so that you can see a variety of dogs going through the click of a tree process. So I highly recommend that you enroll on one of those two um, courses, even if you've tried to do the click of a tree using my book. It's probable that there's some stage that you've missed out. There's something that you haven't quite done properly. And thinking about the problem that you're having, um, for example, it might be that you're not using tasty enough treats when the dog delivers the bumper back to you because if the dog if the dog's number one objective in life is to get your treats then they really should find that way more reinforcing than sightseeing and checking out a person before they come back to you so that was the first thing that i would say so make sure you're using tasting of treats that's kind of a, a really easy quick thing that you can try um but even that may not be enough if you haven't uh, built up that reinforcement history of the dog picking the item up and delivering it to you for that re- highly tasty reinforcing treat. And that's what the click of achieve process is about. So um, I do think it's important to follow a really structured process so that you are, um, you know, teaching the dog how to break this down, how to split this into its component parts and how to put it back together again. And you're not just trying to lump everything together when you're training your clicker retrieve and just hoping that it kind of comes together for your dog. And the other thing I would say is that if you have done the clicker retrieve process and everything's gone really optimally and you've used really tasty treats and you've done everything that I've recommended here already and you're still having the same problem, then I would think that maybe you can set up some training exercises in a controlled environment that teach your dog to ignore distractions and return directly to you for the retrieve. So for example, you can do this by having the distraction off your person somewhere in the room so that the dog is going to retrieve past the distraction but not get it. So you could start with a person holding a bowl of treats and they are standing off to the side um, and they're not part of your clicker retrieve um, setup at all. You're just, you know, you've got your dog going to pick up the bumper, delivering it back to hand, you're clicking and you're giving the treat and the person's just standing there being a distraction. When that is working really well, you could deliver your treat and then release the dog to go to the person who can then also subsequently give the dog a treat. So the dog doesn't get the treat from the person until they've delivered the bumper to you first. And then you're going to release the dog to get the treat from the person. So it's sort of like that person's irrelevant to you until after the retrieve when you may get released to go and get something from them, which is reinforcing. And so when you then would take that out to the field, the dog would deliver the bumper to you and maybe occasionally you would then release the dog to go check out the dummy thrower if it were a suitable situation where you could do that. And eventually you'll probably find that the dog's interest in the dummy thrower just um, decreases and until the point where the dog's not really interested in them anymore. So it's often something we see with young dogs, with dogs that are new to the whole retrieving setup. It's a very big step to have a person out there in front of you throwing something instead of the handler just throwing a thing out in front um, or, you know, just doing blinds or memories. Um, it To have a person out there in front is is a very distracting thing, particularly if you've got a dog or a breed of dog which is very interested in people and finds people, um, you know, maybe they're a hyper greeter or they're just really excessively interested in people. Or maybe they're a bit worried about people. It could also be that they're a little bit anxious. So, yeah. Um, so you can do that as well. And by the way, you can experiment with this in various different ways. 
you could have, if you don't have a person that you can recruit to stand inside when you're training this, you could have a table or, or a chair, probably start with a table, to be honest, to keep it a little bit out of reach with your bowl of treats in it. And you could then deliver your treat. So your dog does the retrieve past the table with, with the bowl of treats on the edge of it. Um, and then after the dogs deliver the treat, you click and give your dog a treat from treats on your person. And then you might say, okay, and walk with the dog over to the bowl and give the dog a treat from the bowl as well. Then you could put the bowl a little bit lower until eventually you've got the dog retrieving past the bowl of treats. But you need to make sure the dog can't um, sneakily help themselves to the treats <laughs> on the way past. So you need to have something in place to prevent that. So you might, if you don't have a person who can hold that or can sit there and, you know, have the bowl in the lap or something, even a small child can probably, you know, lift the bowl up out of reach should the dog try to do that. Um, then you could have the dog on lead and you could just use the lead gently to prevent the dog from being able to successfully self-reinforce. Um, so that's another possibility. You can do it by never giving the dog the treats. You just use the bowl as a distraction and you never actually go and give the dog the treat. But the problem there is that if the dog has some underlying curiosity or reason to be interested in the thing, then it, I think it helps us if we can stay in control of when the dog gets to access that. Because ultimately, we will have even more focus from the dog if we control their access to that reinforcer rather than just overriding it and taking the approach of you're never going to access that thing. It's completely off the table. You're never going to, to see it. Um, I think, I think in the dog's eyes that we will have better control over the dog. If the dog perceives us as also having control over that reinforcer, which is off our person. Um, so that is a reason I think to, to use a release to that other environmental reinforcer, maybe not every single time, but sometimes to remind the dog that, eventually you have control over that too. Does that make sense? But to be honest, before you get into all of this, I would go back, make sure you have done the clicker retrieve process properly, that you've not skipped out any bits of it, that the dog thoroughly understands each step, that you've, you've got a really kind of driven, enthusiastic pickup and delivery to hand, and that there's no kind of faltering. And this is in the house, by the way. Um, there's no kind of faltering or delay in that. The dog really just wants to slam that retrieve item into your hand. And if necessary, that you've increased the tastiness of the treats, particularly when you move to working outdoors, where there are more distractions, so that you're going to increase the um, increase the value of the treats so that the dog still really wants to pick that up and deliver it to hand. And you're going to make sure that really is strong without any people around, just you and the dog. So the dog really wants to instantly pick that thing up and slam it in your hand. And that you've increased the distance so that you've uh, maybe done a little memory on the item, put it down, walked away. You've got the dog going out to it and and bringing it back to hand, and that you've got that you've got the distance and you've got that sort of drive to deliver to hand before you introduce a new person. Oh, and one little other step I forgot is sometimes when you do introduce a new person, it will help if you don't have that person throw. So just have the person stand out there like. Um, a, a rock <laughs> and you do exactly with the dog what you would usually do in training so don't have the person throw the dummy because sometimes having the dummy come out of the person makes the person be perceived as being the source of the dummy and therefore very interesting um so you could just have the person there as a distraction like any other distraction and get work on getting the dog reliably picking up and delivering to hand well maybe you're throwing the dummy out um, for the dog or you are placing it and walking away and sending the dog for it but the person the dummy thrower isn't is just standing there and then once you've got that working reliably you can have the dummy thrower um, do their dummy throwing noise whoop 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 or whatever it is 
but then you th- still throw out the dummy or you still place the dummy. Then you could have the dummy thrower make their dummy throwing noise, whoop, whoop, whoop. And instead of throwing the dummy, just really obviously place the dummy on the floor many meters away from them um, and then send, send the dog for the dummy. And that's another thing to say. When you first start out throwing marks, don't have the dummy thrower throw the bumpers too close to them because if the bumpers land close to them, it's really easy for the dog to get into the habit of picking up the bumper and checking out the person because because they're really close to each other. So you have the dummy thrower throw the dummies really far from them when you first start to use a dummy thrower. Um, and that's going to make it much easier for the dog because it will kind of end up at first that the thrower is sort of equidistant from you, the handler. And so the dog's going to make a choice. Do I run all the way over there to check out the person or do I run the same distance back to my handler and get a really tasty treat? So often the dog will make the right choice in that situation and you can build on that. Um, So I hope that helps as well. Um, And as I said, if you get through all of that and you've built up all of that and you're still having problems, then it's time to kind of work out you know, how can I set up this situation in a way that I can control it using other distractions, using um, people holding food or a bowl of food on a table nearby or something like that. So I can teach the concept of retrieve directly back to me past a distraction without checking out the distraction on the way. So that's the concept you need to get across to the dog. So I hope that helps um, and makes some sense. And I feel like I've just talked nonstop for about 40 minutes. And I hope that people are still with me. <laughs> um, and I think that is plenty for this episode. And I will be back soon.